We are going to review what we studied for a little bit, and then we will get to our new passage in chapter 2. It's important to remember the theme of the book of 1 Corinthians is correction and condemnation. This church is struggling in a variety of areas, and so Paul is writing to them, first of all encouraging them, but then seeking to correct them, to condemn them for certain attitudes and behaviors in the hopes that they would repent and make the correct changes. And uh, we know from church history that the letter had a very positive impact on the church. We haven't talked a lot about the background of the city and of the church, so we'll do that tonight. When it comes to the city of Corinth, um, it was not a big red star, but this shows you where it was. It was on this little isthmus right there. It was a port city. Uh, this is Greece. You see Turkey over here. Israel's over that direction. This was not my favorite picture, but this was the best picture that I could find. With that being a port city, obviously there was a lot of, you know, uh, trading and shipping and things along those lines that brought wealth. It was also a successful entertainment center. And you're like, cool, an entertainment center. It had like a TV and a PlayStation. No, I mean, that it was a hub where people would come and they would watch things like the Olympian Games or the, the stepchild to that, the Isthmian Games. I'm sure it was big back in its day, but we don't really talk about it. But it was a popular place. It was a very um, wealthy city, wealthy area. Uh, it was destroyed by Rome in 146 B.C. And so when Paul is writing, it's, uh, it's a little more over 200 years earlier they were destroyed. And we're like, 200 years? That's forever. Well, kind of. You know, our nation is only a little bit over 200 years old, so that gives you a little bit of perspective. When it was rebuilt, you know, you had the Greeks for a superpower, the Romans came in, they conquered. Uh, when it was rebuilt 100 years later, it was made up of a combination of Greeks, Roman officials, businessmen, and Near Eastern people, including the Jews. And so you really have this kind of a melting pot of a city. And with that, you have a melting pot of a city of people that don't necessarily like each other. And I think we need to keep that in mind because that's going to be reflective of the church. In the church, Paul would first go to the synagogue where the Jews were and he would preach Christ. And so a number of Jews came to know the Lord. But then when they ultimately rejected him, then he went to the rest of the city, to the Gentiles. And so it very well could be you have a good portion of Jews and Romans in the same church. Jews and Romans no likey each other. And then on top of that, you might have some Greeks. And the Greeks are like, well, I don't like you Romans because you came in and you, you conquered us. I don't, I don't really like that. And then there's all sorts of people that are here. And so we're not surprised when it comes to some of the divisions that the church is facing. There was uh, this structure, this fortress called the Acrocorinth, which is kind of cool, but I think they need to work on their naming. It's not very original. Uh, they just took Corinth and put Acro in front of it. But basically, this is what it was. It was a high fortress, and the entire city could run to it in time of need, and they could hide there, and they could fight. Uh, it sounds like a great place, but then you realize that the temple of Aphrodite was there, the, the goddess of love. And at one point, it was estimated that it housed uh, 1,000 prostitutes. 
And the people of Corinth were not a clean people. They were not a pure people. Uh, when it came to worshiping Aphrodite, they did so through sexual acts. And that was the role of these prostitutes. So they lusted, they wanted, and then they turned it into worship of God for their own pleasure and well-being. John MacArthur writes that even to the pagan world, the city was known for its moral corruption, so much that in classical Greek, you can pronounce that word on your own, it meant to behave like a Corinthian. And it came to represent gross immorality and drunken debauchery. And we find it tough at times driving down the street and seeing different things or, or going to a gym or whatnot it may be. But going through the city, you're going to see the grossest of scuzziest stuff. And it's pretty normal for people to act like that back then. And this is the world that this church is in. And all the more important why Paul calls them saints. And he says, you have been set apart for Christ Jesus. You need to be a light in this incredibly dark, moral world. With the church at Corinth, Paul ministered there for 18 months on his second missionary journey. And sometime after that, Paul leaves and Apollos becomes the pastor. Ah, so when they say, I am of Paul or I am of Apollos, it starts to make sense why they would choose these different men to associate with. Paul had written this church another letter that was corrective in nature. We see that in 1 Corinthians 5. And the church as a whole is struggling. Understanding, as we talked about on Sunday, it's got this Greek culture, this uh, philosophy and wisdom and, you know, these different schools of wisdom and naturally divisions come up when you factor all of these things. When it comes to the correspondence to Corinth, which is 1 Corinthians, it's a fancy way of saying 1 Corinthians, we have, first of all, the introduction. And we're not going to go through all of it, but Paul doesn't immediately start blasting them and yelling at them. He reminds them that he loves them, that they are saints, that they should be holy as their heavenly father is holy. But then after the introduction, we're, we are in the same section until chapter 4, verse 21. And I have titled this Dealing with Divisiveness. And I can know it, it's a little bit confusing because we have multiple people teaching different parts. But essentially in this section... We are dealing with divisiveness. And when we think of divisiveness, we can already think of vivid illustrations even from our own youth group. You came here tonight. You drove from a different city. You go to a different school. You wear different things. You like different stuff. And we have different preferences. And there's things that rub us wrong. And there's things that we like. And you foursquare people are doing this. And, but you basketball people, the ball keeps bouncing into our foursquare. And I just want to talk to my friend. But you music people are so loud. And it's very easy for us to become fractured. You know, I had uh, Sandy take your code of conduct and then glean all the data, where you go to school, where you live, that type of stuff, and put it in a, a little bit of a file or a folder for me so that I can be praying for y'all. And when you look at that thing, even your small group, they're, they're so much, you're different. You just are. Where you go to school, where you live, some of you live really far away. Like, I'm talking like farther than 15 minutes away, okay? Did you know that? It takes me 10 minutes to get here, and I feel like that's far some of y'all live 30 minutes to an hour to an hour and a half just to get here. This is a different world that you live in, right? But we're supposed to come together and we're supposed to be united in one. Well, we can do that. 
because we're all one in Christ, but we have to work at that. We have to be deliberate. So Paul is going to be dealing with divisiveness. And he first of all starts with this exhortation to be united. He says in verse 10, I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. Now, when it comes to the same mind, it's not saying, you know what? Sam's a, a, a nice fellow. Let's all think like Sam. Sam's like, I'm in. Let's do what he says and dress how he dresses and like what he likes. Let's all follow Sam. Well, no, it's not saying that. Remember, we are the body of Christ and he is the head. So as the head, he's all, we should all attain to him and his wisdom. And we are exhorted to hate disunity and to promote unity. So that means humility. That means selflessness. That means including people in things that you might not otherwise include in what you are doing. But there's this exhortation to be unified. Then we have the second part. And Craig started the second part. And then I have continued on in my second part of the lesson of that. But I call this the witness stand of wisdom. And you're like, well, what does wisdom have to do with this discussion? Everything. Everything. You're all fractured, church at Corinth, not you, all right? Because they're all using the wisdom of the world and not the wisdom of the Lord. And so he's going to show them their folly and their foolishness because what they're saying is, hey, when it comes to sexual immorality, just do what pleases you. Just do what pleases you. Is this not the cry of our society today? Doesn't our society say, well, look, it's my body, my choice. I'm not hurting anyone. And you come up with stupid stuff like homosexuality and transgenderism and all of this weird stuff, uh, you know, sexual relationships outside of marriage. It's not normal. That's not God's design. So you go back to what God says and you submit to God, but they don't want to do that. They don't want to do that, so there's problems. When it comes to the Corinthian society, they say, you know what? Let's follow the influential and the rich. Because the rich people always have everybody else's best interest in mind, right? The influential people, they are, they're leading you the right way. No, most of the influencers today just delete, walk away, all right? They're out there for money and they're out there for me, myself, and I. Imagine if we did what all the celebrities wanted. <laughs> no, don't imagine that. You'll start getting depressed. But that's what they did at Corinth. They used worldly wisdom to make their decisions. And where did that lead them? It led them in all these different directions. So they need to go back to God's wisdom in order to solve the problem of divisiveness. The book of Judges, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. How'd that work out for them? Not so good. And it doesn't work out for us as a church body either. When it comes to the witness stand of God's witness, a wisdom, we realize that we should do things God's way and not our way. I, first of all, through Paul's first witness, we called the crucified Christ to the stand. I don't have time to read all of it, but remember the word of the cross is foolishness to those that are perishing. 
And he examined the cross and how the cross was the stumbling block to the world. And when you look at Jesus and who he is and what he did, the world would never create or imagine a savior that would come as a baby. Never. If the world could create a hero or a savior, he would leap over buildings with a single bound and eat bullets and shoot lasers out his eyes and, and run faster than a speeding train. Well, that's not what God did. God knew he had a problem. And he knew that the sacrifice had to be fully man and fully God. And so Jesus, second person of the Trinity, came, took on flesh, and lived as the God-man. And when it was time, he died as the God-man because that's what God demanded. And they say, oh, your Savior's dead. Now he rose again on the third day, proving his power. To the world, the crucified Christ is foolishness. But we don't use the wisdom of the world. We use the wisdom of God, which explains to us that the crucified Christ is the power of God. And what does that do in the end? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But then he said, okay, well, let's talk about you for a moment. You think you're pretty smart, right? Well, consider your calling. Calling would be when they came to Christ, said that not many were wise, ouch, not many were mighty. Oh, not many were noble. Hey, it's starting to hurt, right? He's talking about all of us. We weren't that smart. We weren't that important. We weren't that strong. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Oh, that's me. I'm the foolish. And he did that to shame the wise. And God has chosen the, the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong and the base things of the world. Now you're just piling on, Paul. And the despised God has chosen the things that are not, so they may nullify the things that are. Look, you, if, the, if Corinth was being real to themselves, they'd say, look, I didn't choose God. God chose me. I would never be smart enough to save myself. I, I wasn't powerful. I wasn't like rich and influential and stuff like that. But why does he tell them this? In verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then lastly, Paul talks about himself. He talks about himself. He's the called communicator. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of God and the Spirit. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. He didn't want you to go, wow, Paul's an amazing teacher. I'm going to believe in Jesus. He wanted his message to show you how amazing Jesus is. And that's what it did. And that's what it did. So when you look at the witness stand of God's wisdom, the crucified Christ, the converted Corinthians, the called communicator are all saying, use God's wisdom. Use God's wisdom, not our wisdom. 
Well, in part three, which is not lesson three, okay? This is actually our fourth lesson in this. But in part three of the section, you have the distribution of God's wisdom. How does God's wisdom get to us? How do we understand his wisdom? And if you're wondering, we're asking ourselves the same question, how does this fit into Paul's exhortation on unity? Well, it's important. It's important how we got the message. Let's pretend for a moment that you're in a town and you walk into a shop and inside the shop are those little glass thingamajiggies with jewelry inside. And you see a little tag on a watch and it says like $500. All right. Do you believe that that watch is valuable? Do you think that it's real? Do you think that it's genuine? You don't know a lot about watches. I don't even like watches. I just know, wear this one so I know when to stop my lesson and stuff like that. Maybe you know watches, maybe you don't, all right? But you're most likely to, to trust the people that are distributing that watch to you, okay? You don't go into Foot Locker or whatever it is and say, well, I know they say they're Jordans, but I think they might be a knockoff. No, you, you just buy them. Well, on the other hand, if this dude walked up to you on the street and said, hey, I got a watch for you, all right? You're going to like this baby. It's 50 bucks. And you're like, well, oh, it's a Rolex. He's like, it's a Ruex. All right. It's the latest. You're going to love it. Real classy. All right. Or if they have like a, a Gucci bag or whatever it is that the kids are buying these days. You're not trusting this dude. His tie doesn't even go all the way down. This is a shady character. It's a shady character. I, I feel for this generation because when I was a kid, by a kid, I mean an 18-year-old, there was this awesome show called Recess. And one of the characters on Recess was Hustler Kid. And Hustler Kid, you needed a fake ID, you needed a winger dinger, you needed a, a test answer or something. You went to Hustler Kid. Shady is all shady. All right? He's got a trench coat on. People with trench coats selling things are not shady. Run. We did not get God's wisdom by shadiness. We get it from the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And we read it from the apostles who are inspired by the Holy Spirit, handpicked by Jesus Christ himself. So we don't look at it sideways. We don't have to examine it and hold it up under a mirror or a microscope or something. This is God's word. This is God's wisdom because it was distributed correctly. We'll first of all look at wisdom discussed and not like, I can't say it very well. It's not like the, Ugh. you know, like cauliflower when I talked about it, y'all were like, Ugh. all right, don't give me your cauliflower pizza thing, right? It's not that discussed. It's the disgust is like you're talking about it, Okay. And then you have wisdom interpreted. Wisdom interpreted. And we'll see how far we get tonight. I think I'm teaching on Sunday. So I have the luxury of picking up where I left off if we need to pause. When it comes to wisdom discussed, we are looking at the idea of who is speaking it. Who's speaking it. Now, there are some times that your parents will have you come talk to me. And you love that. It's a good moment. You love sitting in the chair. And I will say the exact same thing your parents have been telling you for years. And you'll go, wow, I'm going to do that. And then you leave and your parents go, what's the deal? I said the same thing. And I'm going, I'm not you. Just it's a different message from a different person, right? Someone else is saying it. Well, who is speaking it? 
says, yet we speak wisdom. Wisdom is knowing and doing the right thing. We speak wisdom. The we would be Paul. The we would be Sosthenes. The we would be the other apostles. The wisdom that's being relayed is coming from credible sources. And we even think of the Bible. The Bible is given to us by men handpicked by God to record his word. When Moses writes about God, don't you think we should listen? Absolutely. When Peter who had a a great relationship with Jesus Christ, writes to us, shouldn't we listen? Yes. Who are they speaking with? He says, among those who are mature. Mature means believer. And over and over again, he calls them brethren. You think of Hebrews 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. In Hebrews 6, we don't have time to go there, but the author is making an argument that they need to leave the fundamental things and they need to believe in Jesus as Lord, as the Messiah, become true converts. So Paul and the other apostles are speaking God's wisdom to other believers. But what is this wisdom not? It says, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the ruler of this age, who are passing away. The wisdom that I'm speaking of far surpasses the wisdom of the age that they lived in. And you think for a moment, right? And they're in Corinth. Do you think they knew more stuff than people knew a thousand years before them? Probably. Do you think we know more now than what the Corinthians knew? Uh, You think of like, what was it, the Civil War that they finally figured out that you should like clean wounds? And it was like huge. It was like, oh, and you're like, duh. Are we smarter than what they were? I don't know. They know there's only two genders. Uh, We kind of struggle with that, all right? So I feel like we're walking backwards, okay? But whatever it is, whatever it is, It's not of this age. God's wisdom is from eternity past and will continue through eternity future. So it's not of the rulers and the philosophers and the the intelligent people of this age. What is it? We speak God's wisdom. God's wisdom, Lord of lords, King of kings, creator, sustainer, ruler, master, sovereign one. His wisdom is what we speak. And his wisdom is called a hidden mystery. A hidden mystery. Yet we speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says in 1 Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me 
because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy. Why? Because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Every unbeliever is ignorant. Ephesians pictures them as darkened in their mind, darkened in their understanding. So if you are sitting here tonight and you are not a believer, you are ignorant. You are a fool. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fool acts as if there is no God. So don't rely on the wisdom of the world no matter how rich or how pretty or how popular they are, because they're fools. They're ignorant. Instead, go to God in His Word. This mystery, think of this, all the way from Genesis 3.15. He's telling us about the Savior. And every time we're like, how'd that happen? You go to the book of Daniel. Daniel even walks us through the time that the Savior was coming. And then he came and it was like, we missed him. They crucified him. They crucified him. But we, on the other side of the cross, we know the mystery of God. We understand the church age. We understand what Jesus did and what Jesus is going to do. It all makes sense now. We read Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, and we go, well, duh. They read it and they're like, I wonder what that means. The mystery has been unveiled to us. And we need to understand that this is a predetermined plan. God predestined before the ages to our glory. This isn't just something that he made up on the fly. Oh, man. Oh, they crucified Jesus. What am I going to do now? Bah, I know what. I'm going to raise him from the dead. Boom. No. This is his predetermined, predestined plan. And this mystery, this God's wisdom is a revelation that comes from God. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. Think of Jesus on the road to Damascus. Remember that? How the, the friends, the followers didn't know it was Jesus. And they start talking about the crucified Christ. And he's like, well, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, haven't you heard? And they tell him all about it. And then he starts, he says, whoa. And he walks them through the whole Old Testament. And they're like, mind blown. Wow. Well, we have the benefit of being on this side of the cross, but we also have the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit illuminates the Scripture to us. It helps us understand it. So that's the discussion about wisdom. Now let's look at how it's interpreted. Let's look how it's interpreted. And here we are, we're talking about the Spirit. So we know you have God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The moment of salvation you receive the Spirit who indwells you. So when you think, well, I don't really have a lot in common with this person. I don't really know them. I don't have anything. If you're both in Christ, you both have the Holy Spirit indwelling you. So that's a good talking point. So got the Spirit? Yeah, me too. All right. Maybe that break down some of the awkwardness that you have. But receiving the Holy Spirit allows us to understand God's wisdom says, for to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. So we first of all see the relationship between the Spirit and God, which, yes, the Spirit is God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? 
Now, I would love to tell you that I could jump inside of Jackson's brain right now and tell you exactly what he's thinking. No, I, I don't want to know what Jackson's thinking, even though I love Jackson. It's impossible, right? He knows what he's thinking. He's thinking, why does Justin hate me so much? I don't. I love you, buddy. All right? We have the Spirit who is God indwelling us, and so he always knows what God thinks. And when we, we read the Word, the Spirit, knowing what God thinks, illuminates it to us. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the spirit of God. So when the world says God wants this and God's a God of acceptance and a God of this and a God of that, they have no idea. They don't have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. They don't understand. What about the spirit in the believer? Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God. Skip to verse 15. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. The spiritual one is the believer. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we, he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. And so we're going back to this whole unity, disunity thing. I have the Holy Spirit, you have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit illuminates to us the very mind of God. Let's use that as the foundation for our interaction and our decision making. And then he goes on and talks about the Spirit and the unbeliever. This is one of the reasons why there is disunity in the church. Because there is wheat, or there are tares among the wheat. In this room, I seriously doubt every single one of you is a believer. Some of you are unbelievers, and unbelievers are, as we said, ignorant, darkened in their understanding. They're selfish. They stir things up. They talk, and they want disunity. All the more for us to present Christ through our lives with one another, understanding that situation. But it says this, but a natural man, an unbeliever, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. You ever have that loved one? And you're like, man, I've, I can't share the gospel any better. But you still won't come to Christ. You can't share it better. And you don't have to. You pray for the Spirit to work in their heart and to call and draw them unto the Lord. That's what you do. When you talk about purity and righteousness, when you talk about selflessness and humility, those are concepts that the world doesn't get. The world doesn't understand sacrifice. And we know that. So we don't use the world as our fuel of understanding for how to do stuff. That's not our model. We look to the model of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. The unity in that relationship and we take that into the church and that's how we do what we do. We'll talk more about that on, on Sunday. But in conclusion, I just have two things I really want us to work on. The first one would be maximizing God's gift to us. 
maximizing God's gift to us. In 1 Corinthians verse 26 of chapter 1, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that not many were made wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. What do we mean by that? How is that maximizing God's gift? He gave you the gift of salvation. He gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit. And now you live your life and I live my life for His glory so that we can win others to Christ. Look, there's nothing special about me, but there's something special about my Savior. Don't you want to hear about it? Oh, well, I appreciate you saying I'm doing a good job with that, but I just want to let you know that I give the glory to God because apart from Him, I don't even want to think about what I would act like and what I would do. You've been given so much. Take that giftedness and accomplish what He has called you to. But then I want you to make sure that you're guarding against disunity. Guarding against disunity. I want you, I want you to have friends. I want you to have close friends. I want you to enjoy each other, okay? But I don't want you to exclude others just for the benefit of those friends. And I don't want you to get so hooked into the sport you play or the school that you have or the, the, the instrument you use or whatever it is or where you live that there's divisions and factions. We don't, we don't want that. And we don't want to just be the youth group. We want to be part of the, the church as a whole, right? But it has to start with what is your source of wisdom? How are you going to make decisions? You need to rely upon the Spirit, rely upon God's Word, which the Spirit will interpret to you, and simply use it. So when it comes to issues of forgiveness, when it comes to issues of wholesome language, when it comes to issues of not slandering one another, all of those things can lead to division. Well, we need to use God's wisdom to be careful that we love one another in this room, that we look out for one another's needs, and we build up and we encourage one another. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful book, the wonderful truth that it contains. We ask that you would give us victory over our sin and that we would be a light to build up one another in Christ and to further your kingdom, putting to shame the wise through our simple obedience to your word and the proclamation of your truth. We love you, Lord. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.